Good evening, everybody. Can you open up to 1 John chapter 5 as we continue our series through this marvelous epistle? <clears throat> Anybody else love Christmas season? Good, good. We've got our Christmas tree up now. Sorry if you're a Seventh-day Adventist. You wouldn't be here if you were, but uh, we love Christmas. Our decos are up. It's already about a month late. If you're putting up your gear on the 1st of December, you're a month late. Uh, Christmas stuff should be coming out in shops just the week after Easter, I reckon. It's the most joyful time of the year. Are you in 1 John 5 now? Let's read. Look, we've been going through this passage. This is John's uh, epistle to his uh, to the churches that, that by all accounts, historically, we think that he was ministering to these churches in much of his later years. So as, a, as in an old man, um, having been all over, really, the world, uh, having ministered as an apostle to the churches, he had done a lot of pastoring work, a lot of his sort of retirement years. His, his old man years were spent in Ephesus in basically what is now today Turkey, and he was there living, preaching, visiting churches and as we said in, in weeks prior, and you can go back and listen to all of uh, the prior sermons on our YouTube, of course, and get more of the context, but what you'll find there is that they had gone through a, a horrible church split at the hands of a false teacher by the name of Serenthus, history tells us. A, a horrible false teaching had swept in. And what we find is Paul writing to that church to encourage them, to bless them, to give them the black and white tests by which you can know what is the spirit of error, what is the doctrine of error? What is the doctrine of hatred? That, that, that which breeds hatred amongst the people of God is not from God. All of this stuff. He was giving to them tests which they could be sure, which they could be reassured that we stood on the right thing. We stood for the Lord God's testimony in the gospel. We saw many of our loved ones leave, but we do not regret it, though it pains us, because Jesus is worth it. And that battle was not just... Christians fighting over the color of the carpets was not just fighting over what material the communion cups should be made out of. Both examples I've seen church splits over in the past, not this church. Okay, it was not just Christians getting antsy about little preferences. John is reassuring them, you stood fast on the gospel. God backed you up, and here I'm reminding you of what those most certain things are, those most important, fundamental things are, and he's been talking about where the Spirit of God is, where true salvation is, where the true gospel is, there'll be multiple things. First of all, a rock-solid belief in Jesus that he was a man who was first God incarnate, that he was baptized with the Holy Spirit, but we're not like the false teachers who believe that at his baptism he received divinity. No, we believe that he was God who became a man. He was not just a man who became a God. He's God who became man, that he was uh, God in the flesh, died for our sins, rose for our justification, and is now enthroned at the right hand of God on high. He says that true Christianity believes that. If somebody denies that in any one of those facets or angles, they're just not a brother. We can't affirm that. We need to evangelize them. That's what we need to do. So there's the doctrine, then he says, now that kind of belief, when that is truly spirit-born belief, that breeds always, that brings about love towards God and towards each other, brotherly, sisterly love. If there's some kind of set of doctrine or some kind of teacher and, and, and the, the, the hallmark of what they're breeding is division and hatred and the haves and the have-nots, that kind of Christianity, that's not from the Holy Spirit. And then also, that, that where there is... Faith in Jesus Christ's incarnation, 
where there is love of the family, there will always be holiness. There will be not perfection, but a direction of growing and walking in the commandments of God. We don't theologically just throw off the law and say, there's no commandments for Christians, do what you want, it's all grace. We don't say that. And we don't even, maybe less theologically, just more practically say, look, I'm, I'm going to make an attempt, but it just doesn't really matter if I see progress in my life. God knows I'm a cute little kid that just keeps on messing up and he'll get over it. We make excuse for neither of those. And all of that comes up in John's five-verse Summary, we've said that John writes in a really weird way. He doesn't write like Paul, even like Peter. He writes in a different way. And, and what he does is he writes in cycles and he sounds like he's repeating himself so that he can drive a point home deeper. And he sort of gives us this summary of the entire epistle here in the first five verses of chapter five. But it's not at the end. I don't know why it's not his conclusion. If he was writing an essay, that is, this would make a great conclusion, but he just doesn't do that. But nonetheless, let's read verse 1 from chapter 5, and you'll see all of these same themes pop up that we've been going over and over again throughout this epistle. Hear now the word of the one true living God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and, keep his, and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? May God bless this among us and in our hearts this evening. Amen? Well, you see all of the same themes that we've been covering coming up in this short little section. He, he really goes on a pretty linear uh, uh, progression. Okay, So he basically says, if you believe in the incarnate God in flesh, then you have been born of God. If you've been born of God, then you love the other people who are born of God. And if you love those who have been born of God, then you'll be obeying God's commandments. And obeying God's commandments through faith is how we overcome the world. And we overcome the world because we've been born again. It's really, really a perfect circle. Now we're going to pick three things out here because what I think the main thing that John is writing it in this place of the letter in the order that he does, is because he wants to drive home one main point, which is that Christians will persevere in the fight of their life, in the spiritual battle that their life is. They will persevere, or in John's language, they will overcome. They will conquer. The Greek word is nike, which is the word, of course, that Yeswush Shoes gets their uh, company name from, is the Greek word to overcome, to be a conqueror to be a, an Olympian, uh, 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 victorious athlete. That, that's where the word comes from in the ancient world. And John's point is that the reason that Christians overcome the world and are conquerors against their spiritual enemies is because they have been born from God or because they have been given a faith that is of divine origin. Let's go through. We're going to look at the fact that regeneration creates faith. Then we're going to see that regeneration 
causes love and obedient faith. And then we're going to see that regeneration creates indestructible faith. And then we'll be finished. And we'll enjoy some meal and a Q&A. So go back in verse 1 with me already. <coughs> what John says is, now notice the order in the language. This is why we do word by word, line by line, verse by verse, Bible exposition. Because there's an easy way to just sort of, sort of skim over, and, and hopefully I'm just preaching to the choir right now, but we're not a church who wants to just sort of pick a slog of Scripture, or half a verse, or a little phrase, or just a theme of Scripture, and then talk about it in our own humanistic ways, and just talk about it in a way that riles you up and gets you excited because I've got a topic that you like. Or, or I, I talk about the fact that you're overcomers and how easy that is to get people stirred up. Yeah, I believe. I'll declare that. I'm an overcomer. Give me that blessing. None of that is what we are going to do. We go line by line and word by word because I want you to have your Bible, by the way. Can you open your Bible if you have one? Open your phone if you have one because we, I like it when people are seeing what I'm preaching, going through line by line with me. The words say, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Do you know what most people think that says? Or at least they think that this biblical teaching means? They think it's saying, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, everyone who has saving faith becomes born of God. That your faith precedes your regeneration. They think that what it means is you believe of your own free will, you, you hear the gospel, you muster up belief, you really concentrate, you, you pray the prayer, and because you've believed by faith, God makes you born again. But John's order is entirely opposite. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, that is saving faith, does so, because they have been already in the past born of God. God's regenerating work whereby he makes us a new creature, a new spiritual creature, so that he, he infuses into us the resurrection life that Jesus had when he rose from the grave, the very life that Jesus has enthroned in heaven, that life is given to us, imparted to us, such that we have a revived, regenerated, renewed spirit. That happens, and then we believe. We're going to stick with John because it's the one author. This is what we call biblical theology rather than systematic theology. This is biblical theology where we look at what one author sort of says about a topic. That's just some seminary 101 for you. So go with me to John chapter 1. Not first John chapter 1. But John chapter 1, back in the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, it's the fourth book in the New Testament if you're a new believer or if you are not super familiar with your Bible, John chapter 1. Now, John, in his prologue to this gospel, he doesn't quite get into the, into the, the history of Jesus' life yet. He's just talking about the, uh, the theological, biblical background to all of this. And in chapter 1, he says, and he's speaking of Jesus, the true light, the true life, the true Messiah coming into the world. Look at verse 11. He came to his own, that is his creation. He came to the world that he had created. And his own people, that is, even the Jews, the very nation that he had created, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. 
It's like he rocked up to his own family dinner and they did not let him in. It was his house, his family, they rejected him. Jesus was rejected by men, especially the Jews, in the days of his earthly life. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him. In other words, to the exception, to the general rule was everyone rejected him, but some were the exception. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So that's belief, then become children of God, because he's talking here about adoption, justification on faith, then adoption into the family of God. But look at what it says in verse 13. These people who believed and were adopted, who were born, they were born so they believed in his name and therefore were made children. They were born again by the Spirit, therefore believed, therefore were made children, verse 13, who were born not of blood. No one is saved because they are Jewish. No one is saved because they have Christian grandparents or parents. Maybe you're purebred three generations back. You've even got some pastors and missionaries in the mix. That doesn't save you. No blood saves you. Not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, that is the, the exertion of the flesh. No one's born again of God because you committed to do what the pastor told you to do. You did the acts and God sort of, after you kick-started the spiritual engine, God finished it up and got you rebirthed. None of that. A baby in the womb. In fact, before the baby's in the womb, I don't need to go into a whole bunch of biology tonight to just tell you that the baby doesn't do a lot of activity to bring itself into existence or to bring itself out of the womb. That's external forces that act upon it. The baby, the new birth, is not done by the one being born. So it is not by blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. See, some people would say, no, I didn't cause God to make me born again. I didn't force God to make me born again. But there is some degree in my heart, some level by which I still had free will. I still enacted just the, the 1%, the smallest degree of faith upon which God made me born again in response to my ultimate personal choice. And John says, no room for that. It's not by your blood. It's not by your exertion. And it's not even by your will that you were brought forth. You were born again, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God by the blood of God, by the work of God, by the will of God. Everything you didn't do, God did. He made you born again, therefore you received Jesus, therefore you became a justified child of God. Regeneration precedes faith. Look also at John chapter 3, staying with the same author. In chapter 3, of course, we have the, the famous encounter with Jesus and Nicodemus. <coughs> And Jesus says in verse 3, Truly, Nicodemus, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now what does he not say? He does not say, once you see the kingdom of God and, and enter it and believe in it, then you become born again. He doesn't say that. He says, without first being acted on by the Spirit, without first being brought forth through regeneration, without first being born again entirely by God's sovereignty, out of your dead state into life, you couldn't even see it. 
It was right in front of you. The king is literally standing in front of Nicodemus and he said, you can't see who I am truly because you've not been born again. The being born again precedes the seeing the kingdom. And then he'll say again in verse, uh, uh, in verse 5, Jesus answered again, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So you already have that you cannot see or enter until you're born by God. Or we'll go to John chapter 6. Just in case you're not convinced that John is a five-pointer, we'll go to John chapter 6 and look at verse 63 and verse 65. I love hearing the pages turn. He says in verse 63, right? So he's just said things that made a whole crowd walk away. He says to those who are angry at him by what he said, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So he didn't become an Arminian between chapter one and chapter six. He's sticking to his guns and saying, unless you are born of God's will only, you cannot believe. Therefore, your flesh, whether it's your will, your blood, your, your, your exhortation, your, your working, none of that helps bring forth spiritual life. The spirit alone gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. God regenerates a person into new spiritual life and sight and breath, and then they see Jesus as the king of the kingdom. Then they, they mentally, spiritually comprehend the kingdom gospel, and then they have faith, which is the entry into that saving kingdom. We'll see one more time. Paul also, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 through 14, he says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Verse 14, the natural person, that is the person who's just been born, the human being, the normal human being, does not accept the things of the spirit of God, that is namely the gospel the kingdom, they do not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. He does not have the faculty, the the software, if you would, to read what is being put into his system. The natural man needs to become a spiritual man. The dead man needs to become a living man. The sinful man needs to become a saint and then being born again of God's Holy Spirit, he he then believes in Jesus Christ and is saved. Everyone who believes, 1 John chapter 5 tells us, everyone who believes that Jesus Christ, so that Jesus is the Christ, has been born of God. I think that John is making this point because he's asking the question, having spoken about in chapter 4 the the spirits of Antichrist that come against the church, in speaking uh, later on in chapter 4 about the the temptation to hate people and therefore undo your profession of faith, really. Uh, In chapter 3, he was speaking about 
um, the, the, the lawlessness, the sin that tempts. In chapter 2, he was talking about false teachers and antichrists and the, the lures of the world and the, the temptations to walk away from the commandments. In chapter 1, he was addressing the false teaching that had come and spread about them. And now, as, as John's really bringing this, this thing to a close in chapter 5, he reminds them, why is the Christian, why are you able to look forward, look back, look around, Surrounded by enemies, though you may be, surrounded by temptations, surrounded by reasons that you may reasonably fall, why are you able to have confidence that you will be standing firm in the day of Jesus Christ? How are you able to be sure, as he said in chapter 3, that when Jesus comes, you will not shrink back, but it will be a day of blessing, of peace, of drawing near, for you will be like him with confidence. How is that possible for humans in this world and we're made of the same physical stuff as those other people who left the faith, became heretics, walked into unrepentant sin. How can we be confident in that? Because we have been born of God. We are new creatures and that cannot be undone. Now, look at the end of, chapter, uh, the end of verse 1. He says, not only is that the case, regeneration precedes faith, but also regeneration, where it brings about faith, it also brings about love and obedience. So look at verse, the end of verse 1 through to verse 3. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. It's really quite, uh, quite simple what he's saying. And if you read that and get it, but have a, have a few questions about why he phrases it that way, we all have that question, but it's pretty simple. If you read that and think you understand it, you probably did. His, his, his logic is pretty simple. First of all, he makes the point. Now, this is parallelism that you see in the Bible. I want you to look at verse 1. Uh, it says... It speaks of the person who's saved in the very first line as being someone who believes that Jesus is, is the Christ. That's how he describes the saved person. And he says, the saved person has been born of God. And then he goes back and speaks of that saved person, but using a different language, which means what he's about to say is the same as somebody who believes in Christ. So he says, everyone that believes in Jesus is born of God. Then he goes back and says, and everyone who loves the Father loves those who have been born of him. So he's, he's e e uh, 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 equating those who believe in Jesus and those who love the Father, which is very much what John has already said all throughout his gospel, especially chapter 14. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus. There's no way, we don't make any room for people to be able to say, well, they're in another religion, I know they reject Jesus, but they love God. No, friends, Jesus made it directly exclusive, intentionally clear. There is no way to love the Father except to know the Son. There is no way to have eternal life except to know Jesus. In fact, this is the test that you hate God. This is the proof that you hate God is that you do not believe in Jesus. Jesus, to look on him, is to look on the Father, he told us. So John, again, equates the two. Loving, uh, believing in Jesus is to love the Father. And those who have been born of God love all those who have also been born of him. So you love your brothers and your sisters. We've gone over that 
almost ad nauseum in all of the previous sermons. John has labored this point. But what's interesting is that he says, really in verse 2 and 3, that the proof that we love others, first of all, is that we love God. Look at this, uh, verse 2. By this, right, this is how we know that we love the children of God. And you think it would say, you serve them, sacrifice for them, whatever. But in fact, it says, the proof that you love your brothers is that you love God. We've even seen him do it the opposite way, where he says, now the proof that you love God, this was back in verse 20 of chapter 4, the proof that you love God is that you love people. And now he's saying, no, 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 the, the proof that you love people is that you love God. Christian love to the triune God through the name of Jesus is the only way to begin genuine love. That's the only kind of love that starts with self-denial. It's the only kind of love that starts with true, spirit-born love for that other person. All other forms of love, and in fact, Christians are capable of worldly love, whereby we, we utilize or manipulate other people in our weak moments, at our, at our sinful times, we're able to love in a worldly love. We're able to love with a love that does not first come from the Father. And when we do that, you'll, we'll find ourselves manipulating others, twisting their arm, doing things to get in return, sacrificing so that they're in your debt, and, and all those kinds of twisted worldly ways to love. True love, the only way to love others well, truly, eternally, spiritually, is to first love God. And he purifies all of the love that then comes out. Make the, make the head clean and the body will be pure. Make the, the vertical spring pure and all of the rivers that go out from it will be clean. So this is the picture. The, the fountainhead of our love, the, the source of our love that goes to others must be love towards God through his son, Jesus Christ. So this is how we know that we love the children of God. First of all, we love God. And secondly, we keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. I think he's, he's getting here at what we call now, uh, this uh, wasn't necessarily language you'll find in the earliest of Christian days, but definitely in the Reformed tradition, this is very explicit. We talk of the, the Ten Commandments having the two tables. That is what we mean is that the first table of the law is the first four of the Ten Commandments, which speaks to how we love God. We don't worship other gods. We don't worship God through idols. We don't blaspheme his name, and we keep the Sabbath day holy. That's how we love God. And the, the last six is the second table whereby which we are able to love our neighbors. We don't, well, that we, we, we first start in the family. We honor our mother and father. We don't murder. We don't steal. We don't lie. We don't covet. We don't commit adultery. Those six are how you love people. Now, if you're clever and you're smart and you all are, you're already starting to say, well, really, isn't that too much of a distinction? I mean, when I'm not committing adultery, I'm loving God. Uh, when, I'm, when I'm obeying the Sabbath, when I'm not using God's name in a blasphemous way, I'm also in, in kind of by extension loving other people, and, and that's true. That the law has two tables, and yet they are intermingled and not entirely separate. They're distinct, but they're not separate. And John's getting at that here. The end of verse 2, he's speaking really, I think, of the second table of the law. That the way you love people, the way you know you love people is that you love God, and you obey God's commandments directed towards your brothers and sisters. And secondly, he says, 
verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and I think by that he means those commandments directed most purely towards God. So that, so that when we obey God for God's sake and we do those things that really do seem Godward and they don't really seem to uh, be all about other people, by glorifying God, so we are loving God and we are loving our brothers and sisters. And, and by loving our brothers and sisters, by obeying the commandments, we are loving God. Do you see how intermingled the regenerate heart brings about this love and obedience? Love and obedience are, are, are the, two, the two arteries pumping out of the heart of love that the God gives to a newborn person. We don't try and distinguish them. Don't, don't ever try and split between and go to your doctor and ask if he can just separate your white blood cells from your red blood cells or your, your plasma from your red blood cells, right? As a, as a somewhat of a biologist, I know at least this much that that's bad. They need to stay intermingled in your body for you to stay alive even though we can technically distinguish them in our minds. So also, love to God, love to others, will always look like obedience to God's commands towards him and towards others. Now, this is the part that you probably got uncomfortable at when he said at the, ver at the end of verse 3, so we've seen already that regeneration creates faith. Then we saw that regeneration causes an obedient, loving faith. And now we see that regeneration creates an indestructible faith. And he starts like this, halfway through verse 3. His commandments are not burdensome. No amens. And I've said as we go through this epistle that if you read it, like many well-meaning but poorly advised people try and tell you to read 1 John, right? They say, go to 1 John slash it across your heart, whack your own soul with it. If you're struggling with assurance, then measure yourself up to all of the standards of 1 John and then God, you'll just know whether you feel good, you're probably a Christian. If you feel terrible, you're probably not a Christian. And so people go through and they read these standards that John puts forth, puts forth as if the tests are things that are supposed to be prescribed for an anxious Christian weeping in their car before a church service. And it's not written to a church that is being given very stark differences between the false Christianity and true Christianity. If you have the wrong mindset, you might read a statement like that. His commandments are not burdensome and think, well, I'm obviously not a Christian. Because to me, just whack up the first 10, the big 10, I struggle keeping them minute by minute. Add to them all of the, the depth and the extensions that Jesus adds to them, that, that to commit adultery is not just a physical act, but is even happening in the mind and the heart. And, and murder is hatred of the heart, that to do any of that is to commit uh, the, the breaking of the commandments. And you start realizing that you are so condemned and, and you will profess that every day is a battle. I read John Owen who told me that the Christian's duty is to be daily killing sin or it will be killing him. I thought that it was supposed to be a daily fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil to walk the straight and narrow path. What is John doing? Saying the law of God is easy. Well, of course, he's not saying that the law of God is some chipper, easy path that any kid born of God can easily walk in. What he's meaning is that it is not a troublesome burden. 
He's not saying that it's not without difficulty. He's not saying that the, the, the life of following God's commandments is simple and easy and takes no spiritual commitment, zeal, or effort. What he means is that those who walk in it find life and joy and peace. We read this in Psalm 119, the last verse that I read in our call to worship. God, in your righteousness, that is, on the path of your commandments, in your righteousness, give me life. As if if you were a plant and you heard that the instructions are water them and give them good soil and let them see sunlight, you wouldn't, as a plant, start sparking up and say, well, this is legalism. I hate these rules. Why is everybody down on my throat so much, you know, telling me that I need to be watered, need to see sun, need to have good soil, all these legalists? No, all of God's commandments are basically instructions on how to be blessed and joyful. It does not mean that if you walk in them, you will not have suffering. That if you walk in them, God will be indebted to you to keep you from sickness or demotions at work or death or persecution. None of that. What we mean is what Psalm chapter 1 means. That the man, the woman, who meditates on the word and the law and the statutes of God day and night is like a tree planted next to a running brook of the freshest water. It grows. It produces fruit. Its leaves flourish in any season, for it has its sustenance provided for it. That's what John means. The laws of God to those who have been born of God are not, they're not a curse. They're a blessing. They're not burdensome as if you, you hate that you have to keep on carrying this thing, but they are a blessing that you are glad that God gives this to walk, uh, to, uh, to walk under. Look at verse 4. This really starts explaining what he means. His commandments aren't burdensome for or because. Okay, Why are the commandments of God not a curse to Christians? Because everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. God's laws are not without difficulty, but our victory over lawlessness has been assured, and because of that, we're able to delight in the law, though it takes zeal and effort and tiresome work to obey them. Because we have been born again, because our confidence is in the fact that we will overcome the world, therefore we are able to labor on in weakness and rejoicing. For in our weakness, Christ's power is displayed. We just sung this in uh, All I Have is Christ, that, that phrase that says, the sin that promised joy in life has led me to the grave. That, that's the burdensomeness of sin. It promised pleasure, promised joy, promised life, but it led me to the grave. But God's commandments are quite the opposite. They promise joy and life and they deliver. And therefore our life is lived under that banner. His commandments are my obedience and they are not burdensome like we sang now, Lord, I would be yours alone and live so that all might see the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. O oh, Father, use my ransomed life in any way you choose and let my song forever be my only boast is you. That's what he's getting at. John sees no contradiction, no contradiction between living a holy life and giving God glory. In fact, he sees the, the Christian who has the most to boast of 
the one who has the most glory to give to the Lord. But he also sees no distinction, and I love this that we've been looking at tonight. He sees no distinction between God, the heart of God, and God's law. As if, yeah, there's the law, but if you really want to know God, how do we get to his heart? How do we know what pleases God? What do we know what, how do we know what God loves? Friends, the law is not some kind of distinct afterthought that God plastered onto the wall after he made the world. The law, the Ten Commandments, and, and all of the, the other versions of them that we read in scriptures are but an imprint of his own nature. They're, they're an x-ray of his own heart. This is what God loves. This is who God is. The Ten Commandments show to us God himself. If we think that there's a division there, we won't obey because we want to love. But we don't understand that to love God is to love his law and obey them. It is for us joy and peace. And then he says in, at the end of verse 4 and 5, I love this, about overcoming. The victory for Christians. Why we overcome is first of all because we've been regenerated with a faith that comes from God. We, we are regenerated into an obedient love and therefore we act over and above what the world throws at us. And thirdly, we see that regeneration creates this indestructible faith within us. Verse 4 says at the end of it, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. The reason we obey against the world's temptations is because we have faith. Faith is untouchable by the world. Verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You see, the world, it can overcome every part of you except your faith. Every part of you is born from the flesh, belongs on the earth, and will be left behind until your resurrection. But your faith is eternal. Your faith is indestructible, and as we sang, in the resurrection, in glory, it turns into sight. But faith is indestructible. The world tries and tempts the eyes, but we don't live by sight. We live by faith. The world tempts through your surrounding circumstances, but faith grasps that which is above every circumstance and in heaven. The world tempts us through belongings, but faith holds and knows that our inheritance is guarded for us in heaven. The world tempts us through experiencing the pleasures of sin, but faith knows that obedience is the delightful path. The world tempts us to despise God and his law, but faith loves God and loves his law. The world tempts us to destroy and throw away our faith, but faith is forged by God, faith is given from heaven by God, and faith is upheld and sustained by God, and so it cannot be destroyed. The Christian faith, because it has been given by God, is indestructible. You know the mythology of the Norse, that they believe that, that Thor's hammer had been forged by the gods, and that's why on this little earth, it is not able to be overcome or destroyed or defeated, because it's not from here. It, it's made by something higher, something bigger, something greater that cannot be destroyed by the petty earthly powers. That's what John says. Your faith forged by God in heaven, implanted into you when you were born again. It's indestructible. It cannot be overcome. We'll finish by just looking at some of the references in, you can go to uh, Revelation 2 and 3. Revelation 2, chapter 2 and chapter 3. 
This is where John, okay, the same writer, the same author, uses the same word. But in fact, it's not so much John's words, it's Jesus' words. This is taken, these, these seven quotations that we'll see are all taken from Jesus' letters to the churches. He's dictating John what to write down, and this is what he says. At the end of each letter, he says to this suffering church, to this struggling church, he makes promises to the overcomers. He makes promises to the conquerors. Verse 7 of chapter 2, he says, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat at the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Do you hear the echo of Eden? Chapter 2, verse 17, he says, To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give to him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. That would take too long to explain all of it, but you get a special gift from Jesus for overcoming. To the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. This is chapter 2, verse 26. To the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Chapter 3, verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Chapter 3, verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Chapter 3, verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. What a glorious way for the omnipotent God in flesh, Jesus Christ, to speak to us humans that he's made born again by his spirit and make all of these marvelous promises. If you hold fast to the doctrine of Christ, through persecution, through suffering, through temptation, and you conquer, those promises are for you. But verse 5 gives both an encouragement and a warning back in 1 John 5. He says, who is it that overcomes the world and then receives those blessings? Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That Jesus is the one who came and lived the perfect life we could not live. The one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God who came and died in our place and for our sin. The Son of God who rose triumphantly in resurrection and the Son of God who was lifted up and seated on the right hand of God on his throne. Who else receives blessings except those who believe in Jesus Christ as the word of God says he is. Therefore, I issue a warning that if you do not believe with resting, leaning, empty-handed faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, you have no conquering. You have not overcome the world. You have not received eternal life. You are not one with Jesus. You do not have your sins forgiven. Therefore, believe 
Leave your sins behind. Grasp Jesus Christ. And I cannot promise you any, any freedom from worldly sufferings, but I can promise you that through them you will overcome, hold fast to Jesus, and be kept for the day of reward. Let's pray. <coughs> Father God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was weak in humiliation and though he was a, a child in a manger and though he was a, a, a baby in the arms of a woman and though he was a, a young man growing up, though he was all of these things, Lord, he was, he was proven by the Spirit to be the Son of God, the descendant of David, the King of the nations, because he rose triumphantly and victoriously in the resurrection. We thank you, God, that you, you gave to him a throne to sit on, whereby he rules and reigns and he judges. And right now, Lord, he receives any who come to God through him. God, I pray that tonight there would be new faith, new regeneration, that people would be born again to believe in Jesus and therefore enter the kingdom by believing and resting on the soul-saving king. I pray, Lord God, that we who have come to know him would know that the throne room is open to us. We can go to pray. We can go to be renewed. We can go to be, to be strengthened and revived. Lord God, at the foot of the throne is equal ground. We can come and receive forgiveness and confess our sin and, and be so strengthened by your Holy Spirit. Pray that you would do that to us tonight, Lord. Would you make us realize our inheritance as overcomers, our reward as overcomers, and our assurance that you have certified for us a victory to the end of life because we are born again by your spirit and that cannot be undone. Father God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the spirit. We thank you for your love. And everybody who agreed said, amen.